Hey there, all you crazy cats out there in podcast land. Stay tuned after the credits for a special bonus segment. In the last episode, we created somewhat of a cliffhanger raising the question of why Marshall Davis Jones changed the spelling father spoken word piece for his TEDx talk. A lot of people wanted to know what had happened. In this follow-up bonus, you're going to find out. It's such an insightful conversation, you won't want to miss it. So check it out. Also, I hope you'll take a minute or so to leave a rating and review in iTunes about the show. It's one of the best ways to ensure our longevity. Okay, now on with the show. You're listening to Dare Dreamer FM, the sound of creative expression. Any self-respecting comic book nerd knows that the origin stories of the most iconic superheroes are all somehow tied to parents, and often specifically the father. There's the story of Kal-El, a son of an aristocratic scientist in a far-off world who, as an infant, was put into a tiny ship by his father Jor-El and shipped off to a shining planet called Earth on the eve of his homeworld's destruction. The son becomes the father, the father, the son. This is all I, all I can send you, Kalel. Then there's the hero that we can probably relate to the most because he has no actual powers. Batman wouldn't have become Batman if it wasn't for the death of his parents. Even in the Marvel Universe, there's the favorite Thor Odinson. His epic, gothic, and complicated relationship with his dad plays a huge role in his heroism. You are unworthy of each realm, unworthy of your title! You're unworthy! I now take from you your power in the name of my father and his father before. I hold it, our father! Cut you out! Whoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. Yes, fathers and parents play a significant role in origin stories. This week, we continue our look at the role that fathers play in filmmaking, including the role my father played in my own origin story as a filmmaker. My name is Ron Dawson, and this is Radio Film School. Well, it was in. So I was about seven years old when my mom told my brother and I that she and my father were getting a divorce. I was see a few years earlier we were living in philadelphia pennsylvania and uh, as far as i can always remember my mom and dad had been separated i've never had any strong memories of them actually living together you know i have a few memories from christmas here and there but as far as i remember they had always been separated 
And so when I was about five, she was you know, a single mom with two little boys, and she had an opportunity to work for Cedar sinai Medical Center. She was a registered nurse. And Cedar sinai was the hospital to the stars. So it really was an opportunity that a, a single mom in her early to mid-20s cannot pass out. So she packed up my brother and I into her yellow VW bug and drove out cross-country from Philly to Hollywood, California. I can only imagine what it must have been like for a single mom with two rambunctious little boys in her mid-20s. When I think about how I was in my mid-20s, the idea of being a parent is just crazy to me. When I was a kid, I had always assumed that they would just get back together. I think most, if not all, kids from broken homes probably have that deep desire inside of themselves that their parents would get back together, whether it's a desire or an assumption, depending on how young you are. And so when she actually told us that they were getting divorced and that it was going to be permanent and that he wasn't ever going to come back, it was really tough. I even remember my mom making these uh, recordings for my father on tape cassette that she would send to him, I guess, to kind of keep him updated on our progress. Uh, he recently actually found one of those recordings, digitized it, and sent it to me. Uh, here is an excerpt from that recording. I know you thought I'd never send it, but usually it takes me a long time, but eventually I get around to doing things I guess I should do. Ron is going to talk first. He has a lot to tell you about his school and about the things that he's doing. Daddy, when we come over to the house, I'll make a good watch for you, and here's a big hug and a big kiss. It's such a surreal experience to hear myself a few decades later leaving messages for my dad, not realizing that he was never, never coming back. I'm more or less just trying to um, give you a little details that I don't think uh, they would mention when they talk to you um, on the tape and just to tell you uh, how I see them and what their uh, usual routine is like. So it's probably no surprise that the highlight of our years as children growing up was visiting my father um, back east in Orange, New Jersey. And even the whole experience of getting there was an amazing adventure. The night of our flight, she would take us to a Salt Shaker restaurant by LAX and you know, I'd have a cheeseburger and large cut fries and a chocolate shake with uh, whipped cream and a cherry on top. Sheer cuisine heaven for a seven-year-old, even nowadays, that's pretty up there. And then we go to LAX, and when you're seven years old, LAX, even back then, was like was like Tomorrowland to me. And I mean Tomorrowland, the Disney attraction, not the George Clooney movie that recently flopped. It was just like so futuristic. Like one of my favorite aspects was that moving sidewalk, which I think is the same sidewalk that they use in that one take scene near the beginning of When Harry Met Sally. 
That doesn't work either, because what happens then is the person you're involved with can't understand why you need to be friends with the person you're just friends with. Like it means something is missing from the relationship and why do you have to go outside to get it? Then when you say, no, 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 it's not true, nothing is missing from the relationship, the person you're involved with then accuses you of being secretly attracted to the person you're just friends with, which you probably are, I mean, come on, who the hell are we kidding? Let's face it. Love that scene. And then there was the Sky Restaurant with its arches, kind of remind me of my favorite sci-fi TV shows at the time, like uh, Buck Rogers or Logan's Run, dating myself. Then once we reached the gate, uh, again, this is back in time when a parent can actually take you all the way up to the gate. Actually, I think parents can do that now. But she'd take us all the way up to the gate. We'd say our goodbyes, and my brother, my little brother would be wailing uncontrollably. Uh, the stewardesses would take us to our seats. They were called stewardesses back then, not flight attendants. And we get our requisite flight pen. And uh, here's a funny little thing. I used to collect the barf bags. I don't know why I did this, but I used to collect the barf bags and, like, put stuff in them. I Weird. I don't know. But it's just... No, and not they weren't used barf bags, just the unused barf bags. Come to think about it, do they even have barf bags in airplanes anymore? I don't think they do. Anyway, I'm digressing. So... We'd fly across country, and then when we get to New York International Airport, my dad would pick us up, and he'll take us to McDonald's, where we'd have another stellar meal, usually an egg McMuffin, the best breakfast of a seven-year-old at the time. And then we'd spend our summers there, uh, hanging out with our stepsister and goofing off, and uh, going to Great America, going to museums, hanging out at the local pool, learning to play tennis, uh, meeting and hanging out with my cousins, one of whom I'm pretty sure I had a crush on. Uh, and going to the top of the Empire State Building. And this may sound odd, but in a lot of ways, my dad was kind of like a celebrity to me. Now, I'm sure many of you are sitting there wondering, what does any of this have to do with filmmaking? Well, as Kevin Spacey's character in Swimming with Sharks put so eloquently, And now try to follow me, because I'm going to be moving in a kind of circular motion. So if you pay attention, there will be a point! On one of my yearly visits to my dad's house, uh, he gave me a super 8mm film camera. He was, and to this day, is an avid photography hobbyist. And so he gave me this little motion picture movie camera. And when someone that important to you gives you something like that, it makes a mark on you. You don't necessarily know it at the time, but I think it makes a mark nonetheless. I can't help but think about the wonderful movie that came out this year, my favorite so far, uh, Inside Out by Pixar. I'm pretty sure that this would qualify as one of those core memories. I don't want to get too technical, but these are called core memories. Each one came from a super important time in Riley's life. To be honest, I don't actually remember how often I used the camera, but what I do remember was using it to make my very first movie. A sci-fi crime caper about a time-traveling thief who used a magic clock to jump to different periods of time and steal valuable artifacts from history. 
the film was shot entirely on location at Disneyland. To those who just joined us, welcome aboard the Disneyland Railroad. Where I use the different lands as, as the different time periods, you know, Frontierland and Fantasyland for the past, uh, Tomorrowland for the future, etc. We even did some pickup shots at Universal Studios. This was back when there was only one Universal Studios and it was located in Southern California. My little brother was quote unquote drafted as a star. Uh, he really didn't have a choice or I would beat him up. That's one of the benefits of being a bigger brother. So I'll never forget the scene where the thief is going to disappear from a train, take a trip to the future. So there we are, and we're sitting on the locomotive at uh, Main Street Station. And my scene is not really, it's not really coalescing the way I envisioned it as a seven-year-old director. You see, even as a kid, I realized that if I wanted to create the effect of him disappearing, I would have to shoot him in a space, then have him move out of the space, then shoot the space again, then have him come back into the space. And I was trying to do this scene where he disappears and then I think reappears. I don't know. Anyway, it wasn't working out the way I expected it or the way I was planning it. And so um, I kept having him do it over and over and the train started moving if you'll be leaving us here please wait until the train comes to a full stop my mom is freaking out because her two little boys are on the train and she's saying ronnie ronnie get over here we don't have time for this i'm sure it was just early stages of me pushing the boundaries as a director now let me answer the question that i'm sure many of you are probably thinking right about now well you know i had the audio recording from my mom to my dad Surely he must have that first film that he created. Unfortunately, I don't. But man, I'd, I'd give anything to be able to see that. Kids today just don't know how awesome they have it being able to record everything that they have and have it be so easily accessible. Anyway, that's the story of the very first movie I ever made. And I tell you that story because I want you to consider the possibility that your journey as a filmmaker probably started a lot sooner than you think. Even though I've known about that camera story for years, it's only been recently that I've embraced and considered it as a possible origin for my own journey as a filmmaker. I see it now as a seed for what would eventually bloom into a young boy and later on a young man longing to tell stories with the moving image like I did so long ago. On our next installment of the show, I'm going to recount to you the specific turn of events that directly ignited my film career. A story that involves four unlikely business partners, three hip-hop artists, two epic failures, and one ulcer. It's a story that's so funny it would make a hilarious movie, which is what I wanted to do when I told my friend about the story, which made me want to go to film school to tell the story, and that made me become a filmmaker specifically. That's next time on the show. After the break, I'm going to introduce you to someone who will play a recurring role on the show, and then we're going to return to where we left off last episode in my discussion with Patrick Moreau, co-founder of Still Motion. So stay tuned. It's too much trouble for some. Please listen carefully. Hey there, everyone. Radio Film School is about telling stories. Stories from the world of cinema and filmmaking that you don't get to hear every day. As such, we want to tell the stories of the unsung heroes who don't get the sponsorship deals or the nationwide tours or have the huge Twitter following. Those of you below the line, grips, gaffers, best boys, craft services, makeup, set decorators, even PAs. We're going to call the segment Get a Grip 
the trials and triumphs of the unsung heroes of filmmaking. If you are or know of someone who fits into this category and has some great stories to share, shoot us an email at radiofilmschool at daredreamer.fm. But get a grip in the subject. Let's shine that spotlight on those of you who are so often in the shadows of directors, DPs, and producers. My formative years were spent, you know, being a single, with a single parent. Like, Mm -hmm. I, I mean, from, you know, essentially being born till I was like 12. This is the voice of one of my closest friends and a groomsman in my wedding, J.D. Cochran. I actually got married on his birthday. Now, your mom is white, right? Yeah. Is your stepdad white or black? He's black. Okay. Do you and, my, and my birth father's black as well. I'm mixed. Yeah. Just Wait, for the, the audience out there. Yeah. Well, well, we'll be sure to put a, one, of your, one of your more handsome pictures. Back, yeah, back when you were in your 20s. Um, okay. I attribute JD with giving me the kick in the butt to start my video company and pursue filmmaking full-time. He's a USC film school grad and any filmmaker. I'm from Long Beach, California. Strong Beach. Yeah, that's right. Strong Beach. Uh, I, I thought I was going to be going to UCLA. You know, don't hold it against me. Uh, <laughs> I, I, won't, I don't care. I, we're, we're all stupid. We all make mistakes when we're yeah. young, so you know. And, and I didn't think I had a shot in the world to get into USC, but I just... I JD goes on to tell his experiences in school. Like, what, what the heck? I One thing you have to understand is that when JD and I get going, Lord knows when we'll stop. We would go for hours at a time at his house talking about movies, filmmaking, or, or just about everything else. We'll be hearing from him throughout the season covering a vast array of topics. But much of what we talk about are our experiences is collaborating on films together in the mid-90s. So this is the segment of the show I like to affectionately call How to Be a Black Filmmaker in the 90s. Now, if you're thinking that it's okay for you to turn off the radio now because you're not black, just, just slow your roll, which means settle down, hold on a minute, hear me out, because I promise you won't be sorry. Well, I, I love watching movies. You know, uh, as a small kid, I just remember watching all these movies. You know, the, the TV would babysit me, so I'd be at home watching, you know, just a ton of flicks. Uh, corny stuff, cheesy stuff, but it was stuff that I, you know, stuff you, you know, we'd watch F Troop or the Brady Bunch or whatever, you know, whatever was on way back in the seventies when we only had three channels. How crazy is it? I was, because I was reflecting on this the other day, like, like, like you said, when you and I were growing up, there were, well, there was more than three channels, but there was three major networks and maybe yeah. twelve channels, right? No, 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 if no. even twelve. That's way too much. Well, at least in Long Beach, we had we had the three majors. It was right. a, it was ABC. I want to give you some context for JD being on the show. You see, my original plan for the show was to have him and his wife Yolanda as my regular co-host. In fact, the original plan was for the show to be a co-hosted interview-style talk show. But Yolanda ended up getting a sweet gig at Netflix. Prior to that, she was head of physical production at Alcon Entertainment, you know, the company behind Blindside, Book of Eli, and the pending Blade Runner sequel. But given the high-profile nature of Netflix, we thought it was the best that she didn't start her gig out on a talk show about movies. So that just left JD. From all his experience both in front of and behind the camera, I knew you all would benefit greatly from his knowledge. Not to mention the sheer entertainment value of our bantering. But he did have some concerns. I'd only be reticent because I'm not like a, I don't feel like I'm a, like I'm not making a lot of films. So I don't know that. It doesn't matter, I'm- dude. You said that before. It doesn't matter. A lot of the experiences you've had when you were in a more daily basis in the grind yeah. still holds true for today. 
And the analogy that I give is like, you know, I don't know if you remember, I used to be into swing dancing. I was a Lindy Hopper. Yeah. And there was. Swing on to cast me out. <laughs> <laughs> so at the time, there was, <laughs> there was this guy named Frankie Manning. But mm. in the mid 80s, you know, like, right, you know, like swing dancing had this big resurgence in the 90s, like when singers came out. But even before that, it started to build up. And like where I learned swing dancing was at the Pasadena Barroom Dance Association in Pasadena, California. And like the two owners of that studio, like sought out like some of the original Lindy Hoppers. And one of them who was still alive was Frankie Manning. I think at right. the time he was in his late 60s or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he literally had not done any swing dancing for probably like 30 or 40 years. Actually, he was a retired postman. But he had been in movies like Hell's a Poppin' back in the 30s and whatnot. Like he... I mean, he wasn't like, you know, Clark Gable or anything, but he was a, as far as like african-american celebrities in the in the cinema world as a dancer he was well known yeah he was it yeah he, he, yeah, was, he was the main cast exactly but he hadn't done it in like 30 40 years they brought him out you know to be a teacher a trainer a, an inspiration for other swing dancers and it was like riding a bike in terms of you know him getting back into it obviously he couldn't do the kind of flips and aerobatics he used to do but in terms of the style and his grace and how smooth he was he was like right there and so you're kind of like a frankie manning of filmmaking if you will like <laughs> oh wow you know something i don't know like <laughs> <laughs> you may not be in it personally in the grind every day but the the, the multitude of years of experience you've had both in front and behind the camera totally comes back and it's still like applicable today right you know as and i also live vicariously through my wife she's right right Going exactly. through a lot of stuff right now, so sure, it's uh, sure. interesting. So, give yourself more credit, I guess is what I'm saying. I, I, okay. Well, yeah, <laughs> however you want to use it. I mean, I'm yeah. cool. I'm cool with whatever, you know. It's, um, I'm glad if it's, it's contributing. I mean... I haven't heard, <laughs> I haven't heard what you cut together. I don't know what's going on. So I'm I like, I'm just in the, I'm in the dark, man. I don't know what how this is gonna turn out. He's like, this dude's an idiot. Who's this talking with Ron on the? <laughs> Uh, as of this recording, this, I haven't. This edited. might come back to haunt me. <laughs> right. I wouldn't go so far as to say that JD is the Gale to my Oprah, but I think that's a pretty good analogy, without all the crazy adventures. Who am I kidding? If I'm being really honest, I'm more like Carlton to his Will Smith from Fresh Prince or Bel Air. It was a TV show a long... Never mind. I want to end this segment of Radio Film School and Cinema Maverick with something that I think is really important for filmmakers to, to grasp. Uh, we started this conversation talking about fathers, but uh, we're going to end it talking about mothers. My mom had bipolar. This is Patrick again of Still Motion. And she struggled with bipolar for probably 10 to 15 years. Um, and it's something that, you know, as it first started, nobody really knew how to deal with it. I mean, even 15 years ago, the, the medical system still doesn't really know how to deal with it. But when somebody goes manic um, and they're hearing voices and they're paranoid and there's this, you know, really inflated self, like it, it got pretty, um, pretty intense. 
Patrick goes on to tell me how his mom had this passion for life and purpose, and how the debilitating process of her bipolarism and depression robbed that from her. I think in the last conversation I had with her, um, before she committed suicide, it, she had said that, you know, I, I, I just feel like there's seven billion people on the planet right now, and the reality is, like, we don't need more of us, and we can barely even support how many of us there are. I have to admit, when I started down this path with Patrick, I did so with trepidation. Not only because I wanted to be respectful of Patrick's feelings, but I knew I was venturing into my own dangerous territory. And while we certainly didn't leave that conversation with the idea that she was, you know, going to commit suicide, we were working through it, we had all kinds of plans, uh, I am absolutely certain that is, you know, the reason why uh, she did what she did. I lost my mother, was tough. I lost mine in, in uh, 2008. I remember there was one time I was sitting watching uh, Star Trek, the J.J. Abrams, the first one, and uh, it was my second time watching it. Uh, I saw it with my wife originally in the theater, and this is, I guess this is another testament to the powers of movies and cinema. Vulcan is imploding on itself, and Spock goes down, he tries to save everybody, and then, you know, everyone's being beamed up, and the last second, you know, he reaches out for his mom, and he and she, like, uh, you know, falls into the void, and he's beamed up, and then the next shot is, like, this close-up, and this look of loss on his face. Like, I saw that, and for some reason, it just took me back to that moment, and, I, like, I, like, burst into tears. My wife was like wondering what was going on. And then within seconds, she figured it out. She put two and two together. Yeah. And like there were other times where, you know, that. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I <laughs> I totally understand. You started. <laughs> the host is not start supposed in, to cry. Living them everywhere. And it was fine. Like before I brought this up, I was thinking, I don't know if I should ask you this question because. I must admit, I struggled with whether or not to include that clip of me breaking down. Ultimately, I felt important to include because it's one thing to say how much a thing affects you, it's another to viscerally experience it through the tears of another person. And as I mentioned in the last episode, it's only when you can tap into that deepest level of vulnerability that you'll be able to reach the highest levels of your craft. All that empty silence once the doors are left. Since, since she, it's, it's so weird to know what to call it, because you, you want to say pass, but she didn't pass, she, yeah. she, she took her own life. Yeah. But then when you say that, it has so much negative uh, interpretations. Um, and so it, it definitely is, it's, it's interesting to know how to talk about it. But every time I do go to talk about it, you definitely get that, the same sense that you had. Like, I don't know if you're okay talking about any of this. And, yeah. um, and for me, the reality has been that, you know, because this was so much about her lack of purpose and because so much of me coming through this has been in really finding and clearly identifying my purpose um, and realizing what she instilled in me, that, you know, it, it, it makes me want to share her story mm-hmm. uh, because she is so much of of who I am and and how I can then kind of see the world and I believe that sharing her story um, really helps a lot of other people who really struggle with uh, what it is they're doing with a lack of purpose and with mental illness that people often don't talk about it is God's will But there was something that you wrote about uh, following your passion that I thought in your eulogy that that was really profound. Um, I was wondering if you could read it. Okay. And lastly, we've gained an important reminder. 
and it's not the years in our life, but the life in our years. That life is short and we only have a small window to follow our passion. That we should barrel down that path, chase it with a childlike abandon, and share our passion with everybody around us. Because whether it's our mind or our body, it will go. But that we should not fear death, we should fear a life not worth living. I think Patrick's words ring so very true. His comment reminds me of the quote from Stephen Pressfield, author of The War of Art, a must-read for anyone who considers him or herself an artist, in my opinion. Stephen writes, The more scared we are of a worker calling, the more sure we can be that we have to do it. I know there are many of you out there scared to pursue this passion that you have. Or maybe there's a story you want to tell that scares the hell out of you. Perhaps the story of an absent father or a mother who died too soon. Whatever it is, I challenge you this week. Go and tell it. You are his sweet daughter, you're his precious son. One last thing. As of this recording, last week our industry lost someone who was both a great father and an amazing filmmaker. Uh, David Robin was a leader in the industry of wedding event filmmaking, and uh, he passed away last week due to complications to cancer. The industry and the world has a, a big hole in it right now due to his loss. David, we love you, man. Watch you from This episode was written and produced by me with production help from Crystal Sun, Lucas Randall Owens, Tommy Ferguson, and Chris Husledge. Music used was curated from freemusicarchive.org. Links to artists and tracks are in the show notes and blog posts for this episode. Stay tuned after the credits for that follow-up interview with Marshall Davis-Jones. Then after that, could you do me a really huge favor? Your ratings and reviews in iTunes will help keep this show going. So if you like this unique format and would like it to continue, please take a few minutes and leave a rating. It would mean so much to me and my team. Next week, we'll have another short ends episode. Then the week after that, we'll be back with another installment in the Sin Maverick. Until then, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. Goodbye, Queen. Say goodbye, Brandon. Goodbye. I mean, do you, do you call him Queen? Yeah, Queen. You don't call him Queen? What do you call him? Previously on the show, it's got such solid structure mm-hmm. where you get this conflict early on and you don't quite understand what he means or what he's saying. And then he takes you on this journey to reveal that, you know, his mother is this um, incredibly supportive figure in his life. And I hope that one day I'll be as great of a father as she was for me. You did not ask me to spell deadbeat, sir. It, it can be polarizing, which often strong art <laughs> says something. Yeah, it's. sure. What I found intriguing about all of this is that if you listen to the TEDx version of the piece, Marshall doesn't use the word deadbeat. I hope that one day I'll be as great of a father as she was for me. You did not ask me to spell disappointment or heartbreak. You did not ask me how to learn to grow to be man enough to walk 1,000 miles of forgiveness, sir.
Why did the story change? What happened between the still motion recording two years ago and the TEDx recording a year later? Was there a reconciliation of sorts? Did the piece just naturally evolve? Only one man truly knows the answer, and that's Marshall himself. This week, we find out why he changed it and the significance of that change. There was a place where I just kind of developed a lot of compassion for really where my mom and dad were at the time that I was conceived, like where they were in life and how, uh, if I look at it in retrospect, I don't think that they were right for each other. You know, like, and all of those things kind of, and not in a bad way of like, not right for each other because X, Y, and Z, um, but they just had very interesting challenges growing up as kids and growing up into adults, and they were very young at the time. And I think that their, their challenges weren't compatible with each other to help each other grow past them or through them. And uh, all of those things, kind of like as I was performing and doing this poem and realizing that here was another stage where I'm talking about my relationship to my mother, really my mother and my father. And I decided I just, I didn't want to label him anymore as a, as a deadbeat dad. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, so it was just like, I remember like not, like I was in my brain, you know, I was just like, what am I gonna say? What am I gonna say? What am I gonna say? Like, you know, the, I'm so used to doing the poem and kind of just going through it very, you know, succinctly um, and very, you know, like I've done the poem a hundred times. So I'm gonna do it and I'm gonna say it and I'm gonna say it and I'm gonna say it. And, you know, and get into that place where I just wanted to, to do it differently. And I look at poems or art in general for males, it's the closest thing that we can get to being, um, it's the closest aspect to what it's so what a woman must feel when she gives birth to a child which is the culmination of this 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 crashing of dna that like creatively comes together and then merges into something and then comes out of you i think that for us as men that's the closest thing we have to that and in that essence we have you know our creations i think have lives of their own and they grow and they sort of become their own entity. They, come, they become their own person, really only influenced by the source. And so the poem, um, I think, just had a moment where it was like, I need, I need to grow here past this perspective. And, you know, and through me, it was allowed to do that. <laughs> 